Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell. I've just had a great chat with Professor Graham Holloway from the University of Guelph in Canada. We talked about um, fat metabolism, insulin sensitivity and exercise. He's an expert on mitochondrial bioenergetics, so how um, exercise and diet can affect mitochondrial function, mitochondrial biogenesis, etc. So we talked about how exercise intensity and duration affect fat oxidation and interactions with carbohydrate and metabolism, um, how diet can affect mitochondrial function and fat oxidation, so specifically the effect of high-fat diets um, and, a, and an acute high-fat meal on um, mitochondrial function, fat oxidation, insulin sensitivity, etc. So stick around, I think you'll really enjoy this one. Hi Graham, how are you? Welcome to Inside Exercise. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah. So um, hang on, you're in Canada, so is it freezing cold over there? It It, it is, and uh, yesterday was a snow day for the for the little kids, so I think we got about uh, 30 centimeters of snow yesterday. Okay, so meanwhile, here I am, we're going to go to the Australian Open after this, so it's the morning, and today's going to be 37, so you in Canada would actually know what that is, but uh, for the some people that don't know that, 38 is 100 degrees Fahrenheit, so a uh, bit of a contrast. All right, so we're going to be talking about um, you know, fat oxidation, insulin uh, resistance and exercise today. Before I get into all that, I quite often like asking people, you know, how did you actually get into research? Were you like a sporty type first and then, you know, got interested in the science, maybe because of your interest in exercise? Or were you a scientist and then got interested in sport or, you know, in exercise? Definitely the former. I, I was uh, an athlete who got interested in science later. And I would actually say that this is where I, I, I thank Stu Phillips. I didn't have a direction in fourth year university uh, at McMaster. And I went and picked up a midterm from a nutrition course. And okay. he, by fortuitous timing, had just received an email from his former doctoral uh, advisor, Howie Green, who was on sabbatical in Australia, who was looking mm -hmm. for a master's student. And I didn't have anything to do. Uh, and so he put me in contact and Howie Green accepted me as a master's student. And right. so I started research entirely because Stu Phillips uh, pointed me towards his, his old advisor. Um, and then Howie Green was doing a lot of work at the time in terms of uh, exercise training, was working with the Toronto Maple Leafs, looking at ways to mitigate fatigue. And so I did my master's with him. And during that, I took a, a graduate course uh, at the University of Guelph that Lawrence Spreet and Aaron Bonin taught. And mm. that was what introduced me towards the, you know, broader world of metabolism. Hopped over to the University of Guelph uh, and did my PhD with, with Lawrence, uh, was hired after doing a postdoc with Aaron Bonin um, mm. and kind of became more of a basic scientist over time because I saw the clinical relevance of understanding metabolism as opposed to just strictly speaking, within the, the, the performance world. Okay, well, there's a bit of, bit of uh, Canadian royalty there with uh, your background. Uh, and quite a few people are there you mentioned are on my list, people I want to ask to get on the podcast. Um, but you skipped over your, I actually knew the answer to your question, because I saw you said you're a highly competitive athlete somewhere. So what was your background there? And what do you do nowadays? Uh, yeah, when I was in, in high school, I played a lot of sports, but uh, I played two sports at university for McMaster. So I played baseball as well as volleyball. But when I was in high school, there was a 
Toronto Maple Leaf or Toronto Blue Jays put together like a scouting program that to try to promote Canadian talent. And so they were playing in a very competitive league. And so there's a team that's called the Ontario Blue Jays that's put together based on their scouting. Uh, and the year that I played, um, Team Canada didn't even have funding. So there was extra funding that funneled into that program. So we've traveled and played in uh, lots of different countries. We used to spend a bit of time playing, representing Canada in Cuba for baseball. We've been to the, I, I went to the North American Baseball Championships because we were the first undefeated team in Canada. Um, wow. So cool. I, I, a lot of my friends uh, went to the Olympics, uh, got drafted. I think out of the, the team that I played for, the Ontario Jays, 14 out of the 21 people got drafted and, and went professional. Oh, wow. So that's, that's a very high level then. <laughs> and you still look lean there. So what do you do now to keep fit? Uh, yeah. Well, you're still playing so, baseball. <laughs> no, I'm not playing baseball. Yeah. I, I played elite sports. I think I like the the drive to see how good you could be. Um, once I got to, like my goal was to try to, to play at the international level. And once I achieved that, I was happy with it. And then I played baseball for fun at the university level. And then I played volleyball one year just because I wanted to see if I if I could more than anything. I like the challenge of it. But for for now, I, I, I'm i an endurance person. I, I do a lot of mountain biking uh, and cycling with my twin boys who are 14. And uh, I run because I have a dog. So I purposely... I uh, got, got a, a very sporty dog about 10 years ago to make sure that while we're working, I, I forced myself to, to leave and take the dog for a you know minimum of a 5K run, probably five days a week, but try to stay active. I hear you got a sporty dog. I've got this little guy up. I lifted him up the other day when he, he, was, he was trying to get attention. He's a white, fluffy Maltese, not a sporty chap. He wants to sit around. He actually has do dodgy legs. He's two and a half years old. And he's already had one leg operation. So... We won't be taking him for a run anytime soon. All right. So we've got to talk about um, fat oxidation, as I said. So why don't we start there? Um, you know, you've done a whole bunch of work on that and uh, a lot of work with mitochondrial control, et cetera. I guess we we may or may not get too deep on the mitochondria. I don't want to lose everyone too early, although that's that's really interesting to me. But yeah, if we just start thinking about, you know, what's actually happening, because I, it's, I, it's probably fair to say my background is more carbohydrate metabolism. It's probably been a bit of a, a lean towards that so far on the podcast. Why don't we just think about what's happening to fat oxidation at rest? And then, um, you know, when you have a meal and then when you start, well, it's quite a lot. And then if you start exercise, now what, what sort of happens to fat oxidation generally? So, I mean, there's lots of ways to look at that, but the, we've known for a very long time that fat oxidation is for a very simplistic way. We have the ability to push through fat oxidation. And so it's not like carbohydrate. Carbohydrate, you can turn on or off. So there's really controlled enzymes that, that, that we have in play that allow us to turn that on or off as required. Fat oxidation isn't really the same. So if I have a, a high lipid availability, it will push across and into the muscle and then into the mitochondria, and then we can use it provided that there's some other substrates, whether it's oxygen or the breakdown products that we're trying to remake in terms of energy. So we would talk mm -hmm. about it in terms of ATP and ADP, but as long as there's lipids there, it'll go up. And so we've, we've known about that since, you know, Randall in, in the sixties, that if you, if you have more lipid availability, you increase lipid use. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, a, it's a key aspect of it. I know we're going to talk about insulin resistance later and, and what happens in, in other perturbations, but I think that that's, that is a key aspect. So 
If you have a post like after a meal and you have a high lipid availability, by default, you will shift preference in the skeletal muscle towards that, that lipid at the expense of other um, nutrients. If I start exercising and I activate the breakdown of lipids in other parts of the body, so your fat stores, uh, or within the skeletal muscle, and there's fat stores there, if you start to break down that and you liberate the fat, it'll push into the mitochondria, and we will use it to a certain degree. Where the exercise intensity comes in, which mm -hmm. I know is something that a lot of people want to talk about, is in some ways the inhibition that carbohydrates have. So if I turn on carbohydrate metabolism to a large extent, I will turn off lipid metabolism. And it's because they compete within the mitochondria and the products will back inhibit or slow down the movement of lipids into the mitochondria. And I always put numbers to it because it, it makes it a little bit easier, I think, for people to intuitively consider. When we talk about enzymes, it's the amount of an enzyme and how quickly I can break things down. On the carbohydrate side of things, if you put a number to it, randomly, let's just say I can break down carbohydrates with a, a number of 30. On lipids, it's about 1 to 0.5. And so if I turn everything on, which kind of happens with exercise, carbohydrates outcompete, and then they slow down lipid metabolism. So while we go to higher and higher exercise intensities, I'm turning on carbohydrates more and more and more, and that is going to inhibit the ability to utilize fat. And so when we talk about what happens in a resting situation or when we go to uh, exercise and exercise at different intensities, it's difficult to have a conversation about lipid metabolism without also understanding what happens on, on the carbohydrates because carbohydrates obviously have a, have a key role in, in regulating lipid metabolism. Exactly. So, so you know, just to summarize there, you, you're talking about um, the fat oxidation is sort of chugging along and then if the carbohydrate comes along, it's going to outcompete it because you're saying, I don't know again how much we're going to get into it, the mitochondria, but you're saying because the carbohydrate comes down the glycolysis pathway, and then it, if, if it's going to, you know, enter the mitochondria, it's it's entering at a similar step, yeah, to where the fat's coming in. So they are kind of, it's outcompeting it. And, and, and essentially you're saying that, uh, okay, I don't want to put words... <laughs> What I want to get at, just to make people clear on this, is that there's is that when you're going slow, you tend to, you can get energy from fat, yes, but then as you need the energy faster, you'll have glycogen and to a lesser extent glucose coming down and kind of competing at the same spot. Is that fair to say? Yes, and the competition will always be won by carbohydrate because they can break things down faster because there's more enzymes. Yes. Okay. So just to sort of summarize that, you're saying that, um, that, that, you know, fat oxidation sort of chugs along, but then when you need energy faster, you, you need to get it from carbohydrate because, you know, there's the enzymes are faster, there's et cetera. But also what about the, the fact that, um, it's also more efficient in terms of how much ATP you get per unit of oxygen from carbohydrate yeah. versus fat? hundred percent. And, and, and that's because you get energy outside of the mitochondria. So as you're breaking down carbohydrates to get to a substrate that goes into the mitochondria, you make ATP. So it becomes much more energetically efficient when you're trying to sprint because you're getting ATP both inside the mitochondria and outside the mitochondria. 
I don't okay. like textbooks. I don't like textbooks when they talk about pathways because there are pathways like glycogen breakdown or glycogenolysis, but the product of that still goes into the mitochondria. So then we get that added energy from the mitochondria, but the carbohydrates definitely have that advantage in terms of making energy outside of the mitochondria for sprinting pathways. Okay. So for sprinting, yes. So, but what about even for en uh, endurance exercise, you, you're going to have still the more bang for the buck. Cause when you say sprinting, people tend to think about, you know, more anaerobic type exercise, but even if it's almost entirely aerobic, you're still getting more bang for your buck from breaking down. Because as you say, you're getting a, a couple of ATP in the cytosol before it goes into the mitochondria. 100%. Carbohydrates are always going to be more efficient in terms yes. of ATP per liter of oxygen. Always. Yeah. The, the, the caveat to it is we have a limited supply. So if you only relied on carbohydrates, we wouldn't necessarily be able to hunt for six or seven hours to... Uh, you know, across the Savannah desert when we were evolving. So exactly. I've just, I just realized I've managed to turn it around to carbohydrate yeah. and the focus somehow, because that's my, my way of thinking. So yeah, fat oxidation is very important, of course. And we know that fat oxidation, um, you know, improves with exercise training. Yeah. So why don't we just talk about that a little bit, how, how you get an improvement, an increase in your ability to oxidize fat and, you know, at the same absolute and relative intensity as well. Yeah, so uh, it, it also goes back to my original point that it's it's understanding, unfortunately, the regulation of carbohydrates at the same time and the, and the interaction uh, between mm -hmm. those. So my PhD advisor, Lawrence, always tried to grill into us that when you go to exercise, everything gets turned on. So there's a signal yeah. there to turn everything on, but it's mm -hmm. maybe how we turn on carbohydrates to a lesser degree that becomes important with training. Perfect. And so the principle then is if we break down energy and in, in the cell, that's that unit of ATP. So we break that down to a product called ADP. And at the same time, we produce our force. That ADP turns on a lot of rate limiting enzymes in carbohydrate metabolism. So it's turning everything on to a really high level. And that pushes substrates from the carbohydrates into the mitochondria that then inhibit fat oxidation. If you train and you increase the amount of the enzymes involved in lipid metabolism, and all of those are really primarily thought of in terms of mitochondrial proteins. So you hear the term mitochondrial biogenesis uh, a lot, which is really just a term to say I've got more mitochondrial enzymes. That allows lipid metabolism to turn on faster. And what it really is thought to do is buffer that rise in cytosolic ADP, which is normally the alarm bell that's turning on carbohydrate metabolism. So everything gets turned on as I, as I uh, cycle at 200 watts before and after training. The difference is, is that alarm bell in terms of cytosolic ADP doesn't go up to the same degree after training. So I don't turn on carbohydrate metabolism, which doesn't inhibit fat metabolism. So then we have the fat metabolism that can, using your term, chug along a little bit faster. Exactly. And also you get the hormonal. So outside the muscle, you've got a situation where the exercise training results in less of a uh, challenge to a homeostasis. So you get less of an increase in things like adrenaline. So, you know, people think of the fight or flight response um, and adrenaline is going to stimulate glycogen breakdown. So, yeah, so you've got a... It, it does. I, I still say that ADP and the feedback control is the the, the main regulator because if I have uh, stress 
because I'm talking on a podcast to lots of people, I'm not necessarily breaking down a whole bunch of glycogen in my muscle right now. So I still have to have that feedback and control mm-hmm. from that ADP to, to, to regulate glycogen breakdown. Well, so as we know, everything is more complex than you think. So even, even when you talk about uh, the ADP being a regulator, you've got other regulators in the muscle and you've got, you know, the, the external factors as, as I was touching on. Um, so maybe, maybe just talk a little bit there. It might get a little bit complicated, but this, this thing about why does the free ADP not increase as much? So, so, you know, here you're talking about ATP, which most people know is the immediate um, source of, of, um, energy to for the muscle contraction and other processes in the muscle and then that breaks down to adp and i always would say to students you know these are not separate things it's not like your adp over there and adp over there atp is, is the phosphate is removed so instead of having you know three phosphates you've got two phosphates the energy is released and that adp can then stimulate metabolism as you say why is there less of an increase in the in the adp when you're well trained because the, the thought process is you turn on aerobic metabolism or that mitochondrial uh, use of uh, ADP to make ATP. And so uh, the more mitochondrial enzymes I have, uh, the, the faster it is to turn that on, in which case we buffer that rise in ADP a little bit. Perfect. All right. And you're saying so that way it's going to be less of a stimulus on that carbohydrate pathway and give fat exactly. oxidation more of a chance. Perfect. All right. So if we talk about so increases in intensity. Now the other nuanced, I think, point I guess is that is you know the classic Rominge. I don't know how to say it. Nineteen ninety three. So I'd always make sure the students understood. You know, from twenty five percent of VO to max to sixty five percent of VO to max to eighty five percent of VO to max. You know, initially there's an increase in fat oxidation and an increase in carbohydrate oxidation, and then as you go up higher. It drops. Do you want to just flesh? It's a bit of a funny one. But yeah, but I just want people why... to realize that it's not necessarily um, as you're going, you know, from a walk to a, a slow jog or whatever. It's not necessarily the fat oxidation is just dropping away. It actually increases initially and then it starts to. Well, and, and, and that's why Lawrence always would would really highlight that everything gets turned on with exercise. And, and one of the key things to think about is that ADP turns on everything. It'll turn on phosphocreatine metabolism. It'll turn on glycogen breakdown through FOS and PFK or PDH and those rate limiting mm-hmm. enzymes. And it moves into the mitochondria and turns on aerobic metabolism. So everything gets turned on. And then if I go a little bit to a higher power output, ADP accumulates faster and turns on metabolism a little bit more. So you go from 25 to 65%, everything gets turned on a little bit more. Then I go to 85% and that cytosolic ADP now goes up even higher. It's still turning everything on, but the problem now is I've got a faster breakdown of uh, carbohydrate, which causes that feedback inhibition on the lipids. So it doesn't matter that everything is turned on, carbohydrate Mm -hmm. outperforms the lipid metabolism. And that's why you start to see that lipid metabolism going down a little bit towards 85%. But if you look at that Romaine paper and Luke Van Loon's paper in 2004 and JFIS afterwards, they both show about 25% of your energy, even at 85% VO2 peak in Romaine's paper. And I think Luke's paper was 75% of max work rate, if I remember properly. It's but correct. But both about 25% of the energy expenditure. Perfect. 
Yeah, so so what just to summarize for people there, so 25% VO2 max, which is like, I don't know, walk, it depends how fit you are. If you're really unfit, it might be more than that. Um, it's probably about 80, 85% fat. And you're not even like touching your glycogen. It's really just uh, you know, fat, a little bit of glucose. And then when you go up to 65%, it's about 50-50. And we haven't talked about that yet, but we will, about you know, how much is coming from your plasma fat and how much from your muscle fat. So about 50-50. But then when you go, but but even though the fat's gone from 85% to 50%, it's actually more as an absolute amount, as you said. And then when you go to 85%, it's, um, you know, probably 70% or something is carbohydrate and 30% fat. And, that, and now it actually is less than it was at 65. Now, the thing is, it always would frustrate me. I don't know if you do a better job of teaching your students than me, but... When I'd ask students that question, you know, what happens when you go from 25 to, they'd all start to think, oh, it's anaerobic. They'd, they'd all somehow start to think 85% is anaerobic. And, and it's like, hang on a minute. It's 85% of your VO2 max. You are not at VO2 max. There is an increased anaerobic contribution as you go up. But this is, this is you know, still almost entirely aerobic. So, I, so I'm just showing my frustrations there. But that's yeah. why I think it's easier to think about ATP to ADP breakdown, and then how ADP is stimulating everything, because it's the same discussion then if I start an exercise transition, so I'm sitting on a bike and I'm not doing anything. If I start mm -hmm. all of a sudden instantly cycling at 200 watts, I have an instantaneous change in ATP breakdown. That ADP accumulates, that'll turn on phosphocreatin, that buys a bit of time, that turns on carbohydrates, that buys a bit of time, it turns on aerobic <laughs> metabolism, and it's the same thing. And if every single time I, I'm running and I hit a hill and I have a change in power output, or if I'm on a bike and I have a change in power output, it's the same dynamic response of what is the ADP doing? How does it turn all of these on? Why is one system faster because of the amount of enzyme, the capacity of the substrate? And then you can walk down the same discussion that we're having between 25 to 65 to 85%, the same thing happens for every single change in power output that we have. It yes. makes it, in my mind, it makes it much simpler because it's always just, I break down ATP to ADP. What is that ADP doing to turn on all of these metabolic processes? And then why carbohydrate wins over lipid is just because they have more enzymes. It's faster. Yep, yep. All right, great. So what about with... Um duration then so just say so they again that rominge the classic rominge paper um if you're at 65 percent of your to max and you're using 50 50 carbohydrate and fat and what about if you continue doing that which is what they did in the study so you know you went for two hours or whatever uh yeah so i i, I, I their paper shows that uh and and other papers too uh that the longer you go, uh, you can rely a little bit more on lipids for energy. And then the other thing that they have in that paper is how the lipids within the muscle are utilized relative to the lipids that are in the circulatory system. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of a temporal response with that, um, where it's almost like a U-shaped curve for the lipids that are in the muscle. So it's a, you know it slowly builds up in terms of the relative breakdown of intramuscular lipids. I think if I remember the data set over about 60 minutes, and then it starts to peter off over the next 60 minutes. And the amount of lipids that you're using from the circulatory system go up. And because you're now relying on more lipids, you are decreasing the reliance on uh, carbohydrates. Now, we use that 
description before about efficiency, and we talked about it in terms of the amount of ATP that we get per unit of oxygen, lipids are more efficient in terms of energy per gram. So we produce a lot of aerobic ATP for a little bit of tissue weight. Um, so that's why it's more energetically efficient for us to carry sometimes a little bit of uh, excess of lipids compared to excessive carbohydrates. If we could do that, that actually comes with a negative consequence because of the amount of water. So we've evolved to have both systems because they, they work in different situations. Yeah, exactly. So, so just touching on the water and things, just to summarize for people. So yeah, with uh, glycogen, which is the stored form of carbohydrate, um, you have, I don't know, it's a bit of a debate, two or three, you know, grams of water for every gram of glycogen. But for fat, as people would know, fat is hydrophobic. It does not like water. So if you put a drop of, you know, fat in water, it, it makes the little me shells, little circles. So fat is, is just going to be stored pretty much just entirely as fat. And then you're getting four, roughly four calories per gram of carbohydrate and you're getting nine calories per gram of fat. So it's very efficient, lots of energy, but it's slower. So I, I guess if you can use the fat, you try and use it. So if you're going slow enough, you'll use it long enough. You'll use it. Is that fair to say? Fair, fair to say, uh, very much so. I always use the description too, from a hunting perspective, are we cheetahs or are we wolves? Um, and we're a little bit more like wolves in a lot of ways, but we're interesting because we can still run very fast. And so we kind of have a little bit of both. Yes. All right. So what, uh, one of the things I, I, someone asked a question on Twitter, I think it was they're saying this does lactate inhibit fat oxidation. So, you know, why, why, You've already said why when you're going faster and faster, you use more carbohydrate. And I guess we haven't really talked much about the anaerobic. So as most people would know, as you go faster, um, you get, you know, lots and lots of carbohydrate broken down aerobically, but then some is going to lactate and the faster you go, you more get more lactate. And that does this lactate inhibit fat oxidation? Uh, no, is the easy answer is lactate doesn't inhibit uh, fat oxidation directly. And when you're exercising, again, I like numbers. So the enzymes that break down carbohydrates to pyruvate mm -hmm. are about 30. The ability of mitochondria to use pyruvate is partially determined by PDH, enzymatic activity, and maximal PDH activity in the mitochondrial matrix is about five. So there's 25 extra units uh, capacity to break down carbohydrates than what the mitochondria can handle. So that's beneficial because we make that ATP in the cytosol, but then we also make NADH, this other byproduct that would go into the mitochondrial matrix. And eventually though, that becomes a limitation. And if you go to lactate, you can keep that ATP from the cytosol going. So that's how we end up being able to sprint faster than what the VO2 max is, is because lactate is there to remake an important compound to allow glycogen breakdown to happen. So lactate by itself during exercise would not inhibit uh, fat oxidation. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about it in terms of a resting situation, if I could take that lactate and move it to another muscle that's not being utilized and put it into the, into the muscle, let's say your arm while you're cycling, it does have the ability to make pyruvate and pyruvate would inhibit fat oxidation in the in the mitochondrial matrix right so you it depends on which situation you're talking about most people when they talk about it though are talking about an active skeletal muscle 
And then lactate would, would be a good thing because it's keeping glycogen breakdown happening, but it doesn't inhibit fat oxidation. Yes, yes. And lactate gets a bad, bad run. And I think George Brooks is doing a good job of showing how important lactate is. Because, um, you know, I remember sometimes on stage, I, I asked, you know, in, this, in a class or it came up somehow, you'd say, oh, if you could take a pill and just prevent lactate production, you know, would that be a good thing? And most people think yes, but but no, you know, it can, it can it's important, as you say, recycling in the muscle, but also it can go from fast fibers to slow fibers and be, you know, converted and oxidized, broken down aerobically. Can go to the liver and be converted to glucose. So if you <laughs> lactate is uh, important, and nowadays it's even well. I've been trying to get George Brooks on, but he's uh, he's um, hasn't been hasn't responded yet. Um, it's you know playing a role in appetite and all sorts of things. So uh, it's getting a good a good run. All right. So with training again, I guess we we talked about um, the effect on fat oxidation being increased. So therefore, I guess you'd be sparing your muscle glycogen. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, during the exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's two ways to look at it. Uh, a lot of people would phrase it exactly as you just did. It spares muscle glycogen, but that's assuming that I'm going to be going for a run or a bike at the same speed or power. And so the other way to think about it is if I train up and I increase the capacity for lipids, I can potentially run a little bit faster and finish the marathon a little bit faster as opposed to I've maintained my glycogen levels and uh, I finished the, the marathon race, but I have more glycogen in my muscle. That's right. So you can go faster as well. And I guess that's a bit I, I touched on, but I, we, we didn't talk about it uh, fully, was the maximum fat oxidation rate. So just to clarify with training. So is it correct that, I don't know the exact figures, but you know, you know how we said as you increase the intensity, the fat oxidation goes up and then it drops off. I guess in an untrained person, is that about 40% of VO2 max? And then with training, it goes up to around 60. Is that, is that? So, uh, yeah, the, the, those are the numbers that you'll see a lot of times. I think 64 technically is, is about the highest. So that's why a lot of times people will round to about 65. But the, but the principle is if you're untrained, uh, the alarm bells go off faster. So that alarm bell is that ADP again, and then it turns on carbohydrate faster, in which case you uh, decrease the reliance on lipids very quickly. Mm -hmm. So so again, if you're trained, because you know you made the point that you're not necessarily just want to go at the same speed. If you're running a marathon, it's like, oh, great, I'm trained. I've got all this extra glycogen. I can burn more fat, but I'm still going to go at the same speed. The whole point is you can go faster you've got more glycogen stored which is what happens with training you can burn fat at a higher rate and you can so you can go faster and longer before you hit the wall if that's a thing or not <laughs> and it's, it's really a factor of a factor because it is vo2 max goes up as well so not only is my peak vo2 going up i can exercise at a higher percentage so exactly. let's just put numbers to it let's just say for argument's sake i can run at a hundred and before training, I can only go at 40% of that. And then mm -hmm. after training, I'm at 150. And now I can go at 65% of that. You actually go from like 40 to 85 or 90. Yes. So you endurance training increases your VO2 max and also what percent of your VO2 max you can hold. Exactly. Yes, perfect. And maybe a slight change effect on efficiency, but that's, it's much smaller and a bit debatable. Um, all right. So I know a lot of people on 
listening to this, especially the Twitter crowd, will say, okay, but what sort of training should people be doing? So <laughs> I don't know how much you're on Twitter, but this the zone two mania. Um, so this debate, I don't know if you've looked into that that much or if you've done research on it, but this sort of thing about what's the best way to train for my mitochondrial uh, function and my mitochondrial volume, you know, you touched on mitochondrial biogenesis. A lot of people are talking about this zone two, and I'm going to have someone on to talk about what is zone two. But anyway, without getting into, is it zone two? Is it zone two A? Is it zone three? The, the sort of the low intensity, high volume versus the more high intensity, you know, or a mix, what would you suggest? I, I mean, I always have the nuanced answer is it depends on what your goal is, because sometimes people are talking about it from a health perspective. They're talking about it in terms of maybe weight loss. They're talking about it in terms of performance and speed. So it really depends on, on what you're talking about. I think there's a, quite a good amount of evidence out there that low intensity, but for long duration will end up increasing your mitochondrial content the same as high intensity for a shorter duration provided you do each one sufficiently. So yes. you have to be careful if you look at the comparisons because sometimes people, for, for, for very good reasons, because time is a barrier for people to exercise, they're looking at volume match comparisons between endurance and mm -hmm. uh, high intensity interval training. But then we're only doing endurance three days a week. If you look at some of the older literature, that would be the quintessential endurance of five or six days a week compared to two to three days a week of high intensity. Um, they actually are the same in terms of mitochondrial adaptations, the same in terms of VO2 max adaptations. Um, but there are a couple of other nuances that might be important in terms of health. So it depends on if you want to talk that, about that now or you want to talk about that later. Um, maybe we'll talk about that later. And the, I like the way you said it depends on what you're, you're looking for. So for health or for exercise performance, but also... You know, it's, it depends on what you're training for as well. So if you're, a, you're an athlete, for example, um, you know, you, you want to be sort of uh, specific in your training as well. So you get, if you do this magnificent, low intensity, long, slow distance training, and you have all this nice mitochondria, but the body has no idea how to run faster. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I was in the, the lab at the same time Trent Stellingworth was doing his PhD and, and when I talked to him about it too it's 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 ironic because a lot of what I think we would probably advocate for coaches have been doing for a very long time they oscillate between low long slow runs to high intensity exercise they make sure that they don't overtrain their athletes and so they only do it twice a week but to train somebody you want to make sure you're doing something most days of the week and so they'll do it six days a week and so there's there's a, a you know a nice periodization within a week as well as block training to try to do a little bit of everything. Uh, and I would actually argue that if we had all the time in the world, that's probably the best for most people, even in terms of health. It's just the yes. intensity vary a little bit. Perfect. All right. Okay. So um, I think we've talked quite a lot about fat oxidation during exercise. What about if we start thinking about diet and fat oxidation? So the effect of um, I don't know, acute, you know, uh, meal. So if you have a carbohydrate meal and then you exercise versus a high fat meal, I mean, you know, it's easy. Quite often we talk about, we kind of make out like everything's just one or the other. A meal is usually a bit of a mixture. So if yep. it's um, more carbohydrates or more fats, what, what kind of effect is that going to have on your fat oxidation during exercise? 
which as you say, you can't separate them out. So your, your metabolism during exercise. And again, there's a whole bunch of nuances in there because it depends on if glycogen is is getting depleted. And I've gone long enough that then if I'm if I then have a carbohydrate uh, availability because I'm drinking a sugar drink, then that can impact exactly. fuel for sure. Uh, but if we handle the lipid side of things, we, I think some of the the great experiments that remain also did. I think his paper was in '96, and then there's a whole bunch of papers looking at mechanism that Lawrence Spree uh, and George Hagenheiser were doing after that is they just infuse lipids. And so if you do an intralipid mm -hmm. infusion and then try to look at uh, fuel metabolism, even at 85% VO2 peak, as lipid metabolism is going down, if you infuse lipids and have more lipids available, you can bump it back up a little bit. And so there, there, there is uh, the ability to modulate that. The question that I think Louise Burke and others have always asked is whether or not that's ideal for performance. Because mm -hmm. again, as we said, there's a little bit more efficiency from a ATP per liter of oxygen on the carbohydrates. And so again, the question becomes is what is your goal when we're talking about lipid metabolism and exercise? Is it to optimize performance or optimize health? Because the excess lipids in a lot of ways, and especially in Western civilization, are linked to comorbidities, whether it's heart disease, insulin resistance, and the list goes on and on. So, uh, but then we're not using diet to optimize fat. We're using exercise to optimize fat oxidation to get rid of it, right? So it just depends on, on how we define that. But definitely a meal can Im impact how a muscle utilizes either carbohydrates or lipids. And I would say we've known about that again since 1963. That's when uh, Randall was using lipid availability to show that that would impact fuel metabolism. Yes, actually that glucose fatty acid cycle. So that's the, the Randall was is saying how um, glucose will inhibit fat use. Is that still, it's getting a bit nitty gritty, but it's a bit controversial, isn't it? Well, I would say his fundamental observation was accurate. His mechanism was inaccurate. So that's where, where I think it falls apart. So if you look at the Randall cycle, he proposed that citrate would leave the mitochondrial inhibit PFK. And that was the key control point. I think that that has been, uh, in a lot of ways, become irrelevant, especially when it comes to exercise. Um, but the observation that I could shift metabolism with the availability of substrates has been upheld numerous times. Absolutely. All right. So again, just to summarize, you're saying, I guess that the body is just smart. So, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you've been fasting overnight, your fat, fatty acids are going to be a bit elevated in the, in the, in the blood. Your insulins will be low. You exercise, you know, at a moderate intensity, you'll tend to use a little bit more fat. And if you get up and have, you know, cereal for breakfast and you're, uh, without even thinking about added sugar, just normal, not, not crappy cereal, like Frosties, whatever, just, just anything with carbohydrate in it, then it, the body's going to be efficient in a way that if the glucose is in the blood, why not use more of it? Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Is that, is that a fair, and your insulin goes up. So you're going to tend to use more carbohydrate than if you're fasted, for example. I would agree. Yes. Jolly good. The body is smart. The body is smart. Because especially as, um, you know, it's something we didn't talk about earlier, but, you know, when you have uh, glucose or fat um, and you go and store it in the muscle as intramuscular triglycerides or as glycogen, that takes energy. So if it's floating around the blood, it's more efficient to just use it, isn't it? Um, then. 
It, it, it is. Um, I mean, the caveat, which you, you're well aware of too, is that with carbohydrates, it also takes energy to move it through uh, hexokinase to get to that intermediate before it can go through metabolism. So, but I still so, say that if, if it's if it's there, uh, I would agree that the, the the body is smart and it will definitely use what it has at its disposal. All right, great. So we touched on health earlier, and I guess we haven't. It, it's one of me start getting into that. So um, talking about different diets and health, and uh, and then ins insulin resistance, I guess I'm heading towards. So, what do you want to say there about? Uh, different diets and, and exercise uh, with insulin resistance? Well, I mean, there's a lot that we can talk about. Um, mm -hmm. my, my, my personal view on things is that lipids, excessive amounts of lipids are detrimental to, to health. I think that we can talk about that in terms of hepatic steatosis or liver disease, non-alcoholic liver disease. You can talk about that in terms of uh, heart disease and atherosclerosis and high blood pressure. And we can also talk about that in terms of how lipids contribute to the development of insulin resistance, uh, which is a precursor to, to diabetes. I think that that's why weight and obesity became a focus uh, a number of years ago as clinicians could have a simple clinical tool to understand, understand risk factors, they needed a, a scale. That doesn't mean weight by itself is a cause of anything. It just coincided with maybe poor, poor um, lifestyle choices, not always because there are people that have genetic predispositions to this. But when you're talking about population medicine and trying to understand the numbers, there were more people that were, um, for various reasons, uh, eating poor quality food and not necessarily exercising to the way that they could. Lots of social economic considerations to that, yes. but but I, I think that that lipid is uh, very detrimental, and it doesn't have to be in the diet because you can have a high sucrose, high fructose diet, and the gets converted to lipids as well, and you end up at the at the same problem in terms of what the lipids are going to be doing inside uh, various tissues. When we talk about skeletal muscle, I think that there's a lot of ways that lipids can interact with processes that are quote unquote bad for health. I've already said that we push in. So lipids, if there's more available and we infuse it, we can push it in for exercise, but we can also push it into the muscle and into the mitochondria in the absence of exercise. And that's a really detrimental aspect of things when it comes to producing what are called reactive oxygen species, which people have linked to the development of insulin resistance. You can also get that lipid into the muscle and push it into storage. And so along the way towards your triacylglycerol or your intramuscular triacylglycerol, you produce byproducts like diacylglycerol or other things that are, I've only got two lipids on the glycerol backbone instead of the three that also can cause insulin resistance. And if I have palmitate in the diet, which is a specific lipid that is very abundant in a lot of Western Saturated food, fat, yep. Exactly, mm -hmm. it, it can also push into another product called ceramides, and that can also induce uh, insulin resistance. And so I look at the literature and there's a lot of intracellular mechanisms that people will talk about. Some of them are secondary to lipid-mediated events. You've heard, maybe heard the term things like ER stress 
There's lots of other ways that, that, that we can induce insulin resistance, but all of them to me can be explained in some ways by the provision of extra lipids to the muscle relative to how much I'm using on a day-to-day -day basis for aerobic metabolism. If there's an extra amount of lipids in the cell, it can push into all of these different facets of metabolism and cause a problem. It's different than carbohydrates because carbohydrates, we have that on and off switch. So mm -hmm. if we don't have the metabolic need for it, we can turn it off. It doesn't go into the mitochondrial matrix because we haven't activated that enzyme um, because we didn't need it. But we don't have the ability to turn off lipid motion or movement into the mitochondria. Right. Yes. So, I mean, basically you're saying, uh, just to summarize again, that if you've got too much lipid or fats uh, floating around in your blood, um, you've got to do something with it. Yeah. So you talked about fatty liver. So, you know, fat is, is, a, is a necessary thing, you know, and you've just talked about how it's, it's important for, we haven't even talked about how it's important in so many other processes, but, you know, in energy production. But if you've got too much fat, you've got to do something with it. So as you say, you get a fatty liver, you can get fat in your coronary vessels, you get fat in your muscle, which which then has to go somewhere. Um, so it, it's correct that it, the fat having a lot of fat actually increases fat breakdown in the muscle, but then you have excess that you end up with these byproducts, you said. So you've got the increase in your muscle fat. Um and you also said the depending on what the what type of fat it is, you've got other, uh, you know, diacylglycerol, et cetera, that can have negative effects. Now, those negative effects you mentioned reactive oxygen species. Um, that and it also affects the mitochondria while well, they interact. Yeah. So, yep. do you want to just talk about that? So, even like one high fat meal can result in dot dot dot. Even one high fat meal can increase the ability of um, mitochondria to produce reactive oxygen species. And, and if we take it from a simple perspective, uh, it, it can be as simple as energy in, energy out, like we have at the whole body level. If I'm pushing more lipids into the mitochondria and I don't have my energy out, which is that ADP, you produce mm -hmm. reactive oxygen species is a very simple way of thinking about it. So that's why exercise is so beneficial because you're providing the ADP to the mitochondria, which by itself will decrease ROS. And that's also metabolizing the lipids, which is removing the lipid from the cell, which would also decrease ROS. And then it gets even more complicated because you can have other benefits of exercise because it's obviously so potent. But from a very simplistic perspective, acute exercise is going to decrease the ability of mitochondria to produce ROS, decreases the availability of lipids, and that's a good thing. Conversely, a high lipid meal with no exercise is a bad thing. Exactly. And, and that's why you can get to that thing, uh, the, you know, the old athlete's paradox that, um, you know, if you, if you have all this uh, fat in the muscle and you're not actually turning it over, then that's not a good thing. But if you've got fat in the muscle, so just to, to refresh people, um, because I talked about this uh, slightly in previous podcasts. So a, a person that's obese um, will tend to have more muscle fat, uh, but also a trained athlete, endurance athlete, will have more muscle fat. But why don't you flesh that out? Why one is good and could be beneficial and one is not? 
because you, we're only talking about triacylglycerol when we talk about that. Um, yes. So, which, which to me is neutral and benign. And the way I always describe it from for my students is, as you said, lipid doesn't like water, and so we put it in a separate room inside the muscle, and so so it's surrounded by these other proteins that kind of sequester it away from all of the signaling events. Well, now it can't push anywhere because it's in a separate room. So that's what you get when you have a trained athlete because we increase the gene transcription for some of the, the proteins that are making the wall around the room. So it, it's great. We've sequestered the lipids in this nice little package inside the cell and they're, they're ready to go for one eye exercise. But the rest of the time, they're just completely removed from the cellular events that happen. Uh, an insulin resistant individual who's always eating a high fat meal ends up having more of those neutral lipids, but it's because we're pushing them in. But then there's so many other lipids that are in the cell that then have a problem. And so that's why, to me, I don't think triacylglycerol is the problem. It's yes. the free fatty acids that are in the muscle that are the problem because the free fatty acids push everywhere. So if I have an excessive amounts of free fatty acids, it gets into the mitochondria, it pushes towards triacylglycerol, it pushes towards ceramides. Now we have a problem. Okay, so so there are fatty acid um, proteins that transport the free fatty acids into the muscle and then yep. into the mitochondria. I guess I'm wondering if, if it's bad for the muscle, which we know it is, why don't they just not take up the fat? So why uh, don't those... Yeah, uh, I wish we could do that, uh, except then they would still be in the circulation and probably exactly. cause heart disease. Uh, exactly. So you've got so, to do so something with them. The we got to do something with them. And the best way to remove lipids is to actually uh, use them. Burn and them. the best way to do that is exercise because we can increase our energetic demands so much. So mm -hmm. it's actually kind of smart to push them into the muscle. And from an evolutionary perspective, we really have never had a situation because where we used to exercise. <laughs> yeah, and, and we, we never had a surplus amount of food and a lack of physical activity in millions of years. So this is a very new stress for us to, to deal with. Exactly. Yes. So as you say, we're actually meant to be active. And, you know, generally, you know, people were not overweight when we were hunters and, hunters and gatherers because we were actually active and we're actually having to work to get our food, not just go to the grocery store. So it's the same sort of thing I was thinking was with um, carbohydrates. So when you have a carbohydrate-based meal, the glucose goes through the liver, so the muscle gets the first shot at it. So it's, the assumption is you're actually going to use what you're eating for energy, not just sort of have all this excess, and now what are we going to do with it? And, and if, if you think about it from, from the perspective of carbohydrates too, it also makes sense because if you don't need it, the liver stores it. And so the the muscle also has what I think is like a feed forward system, whereas as you take in a little bit of lipids, it pushes more transporters to the membrane. So you take up more lipids. So I have energy there to spare a carbohydrate so it can also keep it for the liver and for the brain. And so if we have this mixed meal where I have lipids and sugar, wouldn't it be a great situation if we're going back 100 200, 300 years where the liver stores the sugar for a later date when I might not have food and the muscle takes up the lipids right now. So the, that's why the one meal of lipids can cause insulin resistance because it's not pathological. It's just saying, don't put the sugar into the muscle, put it into the liver because I have enough energy for right now. 
exactly. So, so it's the same as you touched on earlier. If you have carb more carbohydrate floating around than you need, you'll convert that to fat. If you've got more fat than you need, you'll store it. And if you've got more glucose than you need, you'll store it. So, but the idea is if you're turning through this, if you're turning things over, you'll be healthier <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Now, there's a question on Twitter, a couple of questions on Twitter. Uh, Mark Preben, uh, Lindbergh, to what extent does an impaired fat oxidative capacity proceed to insulin resistance in subsequent type 2 diabetes? Is there impaired fat oxidative capacity? So for a start, does insulin resistance actually reduce fat oxidation? Most people, when they say, is there a problem to utilize fat? I would always answer no. And that if I take a diabetic person and exercise them, fat oxidation goes up. So that's the super mm -hmm. simple answer. If I exercise anybody, fat oxidation goes up. So there, there is no problem with fat oxidation. It's always about, when I talk about it from a resting perspective, it's mm -hmm. amount of substrate and that becomes very nuanced. If I go back far enough in the literature, there's one paper that I really liked where they did a postprandial response to lipid metabolism and tried to understand fuel utilization postprandially. So after a meal, yep, yep. Yeah, and that's where you can see the potential for an impairment in lipid metabolism. But I think it's because you've all of a sudden got the surplus of sugar that's in, in the diet as well, or in the meal. Yes. But if I exercise, there's a number of papers out there that say there's no problem in lipid metabolism during exercise because that's a different situation than, so there's no problem with the machinery for mm. using fat. It has to do with the hormones and the substrates that are there in a resting muscle. And that's where you can sometimes pick up a difference. That's interesting because it's exactly the same. You could have just replaced glucose uptake there with fat because you know pe people with diabetes have problems with their insulin stimulated glucose uptake in the muscle but their glucose uptake during exercise is absolutely normal yep so um again because I've, I've used the same terminology in grants and things saying the machinery is normal so if we can understand the machinery dot 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 okay so so potentially at rest the fat oxidation may be a problem after a high carbohydrate meal. Is that what you're saying? And people with... And I, yeah, and, and that's... that's So to get back to one of our, our previous conversations about intensity, we did one, one project that's uh, published in MedSci in collaboration with Jamie Burr, and we were looking at the postprandial responses following either endurance five days a week or sprint interval training, uh, high, in interval, high intensity interval training, three days a week. And then we gave a lipid challenge. Only mm -hmm. endurance improved how the body handled that lipid challenge. Yeah. So I think that we need to start pivoting towards some of these models towards the postprandial response to understand the mechanisms there, the hormones there, as well as the interaction with exercise, which we haven't actually been doing in the last 20 years. If you actually go back far enough, that, that's what a lot of people were doing. Okay, so um, just thinking a bit more, because we've touched on the mitochondria, we're talking about insulin resistance, the, the old classic uh, discussion, I don't know where it's at nowadays, but does mitochondrial dysfunction cause insulin resistance or does insulin resistance cause mitochondrial dysfunction? So I, I've, I've, I know last time I looked at this, there was 
kind of ways you could you could sort of argue it both ways do you know where what, what's your thinking on that nowadays i still think you could argue it both ways it just depends mm -hmm. on how you define dysfunction so if we talk about okay. it from the machinery which is the classic way so you do a muscle biopsy and you take it out and you look at isolated cells or organelles my isolated mitochondria or permeabilized fibers uh, i think there's very little evidence the classical assessments so the machinery the electron transport chain all of that is normal where we have seen a little bit of difference is on a high fat diet or with aging you can maybe decrease the ability to move adp into the mitochondria so small changes in in submaximal not saturating so trying to model maybe what happens in vivo a little bit better that seems to maybe be different and then if that's accurate that lines up with the in vivo assessments using uh mr or nmr we're looking at the phosphocreatine recovery because those studies quite consistently show in diabetic individuals uh, a reduced time for the phosphocreatine uh, recovery and part of the machinery for that or not the machinery but the environment could be because of that high lipid environment because palmitate specifically so saturated lipid binds to the adp transporter and inhibits adp transport so if i have high lipids i get less adp moving into the mitochondria mm -hmm. and then you would shift towards that carbohydrate phenotype and impair lipid metabolism but the machinery to me is okay from a classical perspective yeah and i think that fits with um remember at one stage fleming dealer from um copenhagen was saying that people with type 2 diabetes had less mitochondrial what do you say basically their mitochondrial function was reduced but it's only because they had less mitochondria yep. if you look at it per unit of mitochondria it was normal is that is so that's, that that's rob buchel's uh work with fleming dela and mm -hmm. uh martin mogensen was doing some work uh at the same time with kenseline and so it was isolating mitochondria and also showing lipid metabolism um and there's a lot of people that have uh, have done that and contributed to that work and in rodents we induce insulin resistance on a high fat diet within about three weeks and mitochondrial content actually goes up um but even in rodents when you have more mitochondria if you look at permeabilized fibers, how they respond to a really small amount of ADP is actually impaired when they develop insulin resistance. Okay, so that's interesting. So do you think mitochondrial dysfunction is causing insulin resistance? If you're going to sum up or not. Yeah, the, the easy answer is no. I don't think mitochondrial dysfunction causes insulin resistance. I always go back to, I think that that high lipid availability in, in the cell is one of the key factors causing insulin resistance. And we can get to that, or we can influence that with mitochondrial quote-unquote dysfunction or a decrease in fat oxidation. But I can equally get there with an increased lipid availability because of a high lipid diet or a decreased physical activity. And that's why I don't think there's ever one mechanism. So I don't think it's going to be mitochondrial ROS is the key for insulin resistance. I don't think diisoglycerol is the key. I don't think ceramide is the key because all of those are, are contributing to it, but they're all activated by that increase in cytosolic lipids. And the really interesting thing is that increase in cytosolic lipids impairs ADP oxidative phosphorylation because it stops at ADP transport. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I always go back to say, I don't think there's a dysfunction in mitochondria that's leading to insulin resistance. 
-hmm. I think there's a high lipid environment that's activating a lot of mechanisms, including changes at the level of the mitochondria. Okay, well, that makes sense, I guess, because I was just thinking, well, sorry, it makes sense. But then I, I just I was thinking of something else as well. So if you've got a really well-trained endurance athlete, they're going to have big mitochondrial volume, a, big, a great mitochondrial function. But if they suddenly stop exercise and just eat really high-fat foods for like four days in a row, they're going to start getting insulin resistant, right? They are. And, and so there that, I mean, but you can do that with, with one meal. And, and mm. then the question becomes, is that pathological or is that normal signals that are decreasing glucose uptake? Exactly. Because why would you want to take up glucose when you've got all the fat? So again, the body's been smart that, hang on a second, we've got all this fat, we've got to use it. So, exactly. and then it would show up as being insulin resistant because you're not responding to carbohydrate. But um, why would you, when you want to get rid of this fat? Yeah, fully, fully. Right. I think that that really ties things together well in my head, especially, which is which is nice. I'd have to think about the people listening, but it helps if I get it as well. Um, all right. So, what about exercise training and insulin sensitivity? I guess we've sort of talked about that. So, again, around fat, maybe we've we've sort of covered that. Yeah. So, exercise. Yeah, we've we've covered that. But in terms of what does it do? I mean, it does more than just mitochondrial. Uh, changes or mitochondrial biogenesis. That's the classic that everybody talks about. But but exercise also, because it's 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 decreasing that you know reactive lipid availability because the free fatty acids potentially are changing within the the muscle. And the other thing that we haven't talked about is the transport at the level of the plasma membrane changes with insulin resistance. And so it's the opposite of glucose where you have decreased glute four with lipids, you actually have increased lipid transporters on the plasma membrane. So it means every postprandial meal that we have, more and more lipids are going into the into the muscle for storage. But then we have that substrate that that ends up pushing it to all these different places. Exercise training actually can normalize that. So it means that we don't get as much lipids on any given meal. So using your example of an elite athlete they stop training and, and yes, they will start to develop insulin resistance, but they'll still be protected compared to somebody that is completely sedentary and then started a high fat meal. Okay. And that's because they had the, the sedentary people, if they are insulin, like in any way, shape or form, have high fat, they will have more transporters on the plasma membrane yeah, and exactly. they have less ability to store lipids in terms of that room as well. One of the one of my favorite studies is actually a, a study from Jeff Horowitz's group. I think Simon Shank was the first author, where they did one bout of exercise, thirty minutes on a bike, and then did intralipid infusion for eighteen hours overnight and induced insulin resistance. The one bout of exercise for thirty minutes was enough to protect from the eighteen-hour lipid infusion. And part of the reason for that is it also stimulated the storage properly like training does. And so they moved more of the lipids towards that neutral triacylglycerol, suggesting that even one bout of exercise, absence of gene transcription and more proteins or more mitochondrial content, mm. anything else, I still manage that lipid insult to a better degree. Fantastic. And that's the thing. That, um, you know, quite often we've mentioned on the podcast again is, is if you ask someone why is exercise good for you, even medical doctors, they quite often um, think it's because you lose weight 
right? And I often, because I'm carbohydrate-centric, I'll say, well, one bout of exercise will increase your insulin-stimulated glucose uptake, um, you know, obviously without affecting weight, and, and exercise training studies have shown increases in insulin sensitivity without affecting weight. But you're saying the same with how you're handling fat as well, just the acute exercise. And, and, and it goes away pretty quickly, at least in, in mice. It only lasts for about four days. And so if you train a mouse up for a month and then stop them and put them on a high-fat diet, the trained animals are protected for a very short period of time. And, and then you lose that, that beneficial response. Right. Well, then again, the mouse... Always, always be advocating for regular physical activity. Well, yes. Then again, four days in a mouse is quite a long time. <laughs> it is because their energy expenditure is a little bit faster. But yeah, but but I, I always think it's nice the twenty four to forty eight hours with exercise increasing insulin sensitivity because that's beautiful. It's, it comes, you know, three or four times a, day, a week or more. You'll keep that going. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm quite aware that you've done a lot of other bits and pieces in other tissues. So we've talked mainly about muscle. I saw you've done some stuff, uh, maybe it's getting a bit nitty gritty, but you've done high fat feeding, increases mitochondrial ROS in white fat without impairing mitochondrial respiration. You've looked at other stuff with white fat and you've also done some cardiac stuff. Did you, is there anything sort of exciting you want to touch on while we've got you here uh, with that work? Well, I, I, I mean, I... I would argue that the mechanisms are the same. So the nice, the nice thing about studying energy expenditure is, or or energy metabolism is, it, it's essentially the same in most tissues. And so, the same mechanisms in the same process that we found in skeletal muscle seem to translate to adipose tissue. So, and heart okay. for that matter. And so it makes my life a little bit simpler. Um, we we've got a couple of really interesting uh, papers in the pipeline that hopefully will come out soon that that are linking. A, Maybe even some non-quintessential findings, like the gut microbiome seems to impact cardiovascular function, uh, and it's independent of adipose tissue and lipids. It seems to be something to do with the gut microbiome. So we can talk about, you know, the gut-brain axis is it has been well elucidated. There seems to be something going on with the the gut-heart as well, and and I don't know what the definitive mechanism is, other than it seems to be doing something within the heart. And we always seem to be finding it in terms of mitochondrial ROS in the heart. So uh, again, same same signaling processes affect cardiovascular function the same as they do uh, skeletal muscle as well. Okay. And actually, just talking about reactive oxygen species again, um, the old the discussion of, of what's the difference between having like chronically elevated reactive oxygen species versus, you know, what happens, say, for with exercise where you get uh, a small sort of temporal, so short increase. Did you want to just explain that a little bit, maybe? Yeah, I, I and so the, I mean that that's it's the same with IL six with anything. These pulsatile stress changes, I think, are important. And if you think about any type of adaptation within a cell, it's there's an acute stress. We affect gene transcription or cellular events in some way, shape, or form to mitigate the stress. And so if you have this pulsatile stress there, maybe you turn off the beneficial responses and you end up with this pathological change. And so we always want to think about on-off transient responses as being different than mm -hmm. I think that square, square wave, if you want to depict it that way. Acute ROS can induce gene transcription. I mean, that's been shown. Mm -hmm. It could change... It can, it can change a lot of different processes and be beneficial. It's, it's really when it becomes chronic that we think about that as being pathological. Exactly. So there's, there's a bit, I've, I did a bit of work on this at one stage as well. So there's, you know, sort of concepts about can antioxidants prevent the, 
uh, normal responses to exercise training, and that's 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 you know debatable. And then it's different if you're talking about your antioxidant levels. If you've got elevated reactive oxygen species chronically, like a person with diabetes does, and inflammation and things like that. Hundred yeah. percent. I think that the, a fun discussion for you to have with somebody else is we always talk about hypertrophy and looking for the specific signal that changes the phenotype from an endurance to hypertrophy. And I think you should ask whether or not it's the opposite, because one of the differences with endurance is the temporal response and that ROS does go up and you don't seem to see that with hypertrophy. So is ROS something that actually manifests in an adaptation that is specific to endurance that is different from hypertrophy? Because you get the same ATP turnover, you get the same calcium, you get the same signaling cascades in both, but you've got an additive signal with endurance that's, that maybe is changing the phenotype. So maybe we're thinking about this backwards. That's interesting. Yeah, because um, that reminded me of, you know, you're saying the same signaling because I know it's quite surprisingly in some way that resistance training and endurance training turn on the same AMP kinase, um, you know, uh, activation, but also even some of the changes in the protein levels. And you go, hang on, that's weird. But you're saying the, the, the ROS might be different in that regard. I think that the ROS actually goes up with endurance in the recovery period uh, because you see a decrease in ADP sensitivity. So again, if we think about ROS at the level of the mitochondria, it was energy in, energy out. In the recovery period, you have lipolysis. So there's lots of lipids around. And then if I block ADP transport into the mitochondria, ROS goes up. And ROS has been shown to affect the uh, ability of the cell to store calcium properly. And so you get this little bit of calcium leak that doesn't cause contraction, but it can induce potentially gene transcription. The same as in a mouse, we put in chemicals like caffeine that increase calcium levels and that dries up gene transcription without causing contraction. And the motor neuron is got the spontaneous depolarization and those calcium oscillations that are determining a type one to a type two fiber. So I think all of it can be potentially driven by this prolonged increase in calcium in the recovery period that is ROS driven. That might be the signal that's driving the endurance phenotype, which is different than the hypertrophic signal. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's very interesting. And uh, all of it's been very interesting. Do you think we've uh, covered everything pretty much? I don't know. We've, um... I guess I guess one thing I wanted to ask is um, is anything we've said here kind of is there controversies around stuff we've said? So you know I'm not an expert on on all the areas and things obviously. So sometimes I've got to take some things at face value. Is anything we've talked about sort of controversial? Uh, you know I know the ketone ketone diets and things we haven't really gone into that much, but. I think that the whole notion that mitochondrial cause diabetes is quite controversial because you have people that sit on either side of the fence. And, and I think that there's a lot of people that will advocate that mitochondrial dysfunction, quote unquote, directly cause insulin resistance and an equal number of people on the other side of the fence. And so I think that what I always want to phrase it as is, can mitochondrial dysfunction cause insulin resistance? If you had a dysfunction, I think it could. And I think that there's genetic models out there that say, if I increase or decrease mitochondrial content, it's good or bad, but it's not necessary because that's not the key mechanism. It's the mitochondria are influencing lipid metabolism or that cytosolic lipids. And that to me is what's key. And we can get there with a lot of different ways, 
And so I, I would I would encourage people to think about it that way. And that mitochondria aren't necessarily the cause, but they can influence how the cell handles that lipid availability in the response to exercise. Uh, and, and maybe that would would help rectify some of the controversy in the field. Uh, this has been great. Thanks for that. I'm just seeing one more Twitter question, maybe, before we finish up. So Pierre Paquette, uh, thanks in advance. Is there a way for athletes to maintain a certain level of fat oxidation while progressing to VO2 max? I guess we've sort of talked about this, e.g. longer intervals and at lower intensity with short recovery. So just, yeah, so the effect of intensity on fat oxidation and what sort of training would increase that. So we've yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 it goes back to the old fat adapt models that Louise Burke and John Holly were doing too, right? So the, the the principle I think is always if you exercise in the presence of excessive amounts or additional amounts of lipids, that you would adapt to that and allow yourself to maintain lipid metabolism above that sixty five percent threshold as you start to migrate towards that eighty five percent. And, and, and Louise has done that with her race walkers, and you can definitely increase the amount of lipids at that higher power output. But if you read Louise's papers, they'll also show mm -hmm. that that's detrimental for performance. That's and so it doesn't have to necessarily be about diet, though. I mean, I've heard of people doing this naturally by fasting, so they'll exercise in the morning or they'll do different bouts of exercise, you know, without eating in between. The principle is always the same, I think. If you're exercising the presence of excessive amounts of, of, of lipids, uh, that you can adapt to it. And the key for me with Louise's studies is that they even do a carbohydrate restoration period to maintain yes. or to replenish that carbohydrate in the skeletal muscle and it still, still shows mm -hmm. yeah, that, that it's not just about that fuel interaction because now carbohydrates are there and we're still using more lipids. But because of that, and that gets back to that efficiency that you, you raised at the very beginning, uh, performance goes down. So from an elite performance perspective, that's not necessarily the, the best approach if you look at the literature. Exactly. So, so those studies, yeah. So, some to summarize, they they have some people on a high carbohydrate diet or a high, or a low carbohydrate diet, high fat, and they'll burn more fat during the exercise, even when you've done the last. You the, have the extra day with a high carbohydrate diet, put your glycogens back up, but they'll still burn more fat. So you say, awesome, they're sparing their glycogen and burning more fat. But then when they do go to do the performance, even if it's a long performance, they're not as able to do it because they need to use more carbohydrate. And they've they're sort of forcing the fat in. So uh, if anything, it's detrimental. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So just to finish up, how about if if we can have? Uh, can you give me two or three sort of takeaway messages from uh, from this chat? <laughs> I think uh, one is that lipid metabolism in, in a lot of ways is the puppy that's following along carbohydrates. And so when we're, when we're trying to talk about lipid metabolism, we have to understand what's happening on the carbohydrate sides. And, and, and there's a nice interaction between those, regardless of intensity of exercise, macronutrient composition of diet, that'll always show that nice interaction. The mm -hmm. simplistic way of looking at metabolism is that ADP breakdown or ATP breakdown to ADP and how that turns on carbohydrates to inhibit fat. Make it simple from that perspective. The discussion around lipid metabolism with diabetics, the simple answer is 
everybody responds to exercise that I can see. So if you increase uh, exercise in, in somebody that even if they did have any type of quote unquote dysfunction, I can increase lipid metabolism during exercise, which is always going to be a benefit to me. And I think that it's not mitochondrial dysfunction that's causing insulin resistance, it's the lipids. And the lipids are doing a lot of different things within the cell and potentially inhibiting mitochondria uh, as well. But it's the lipids that's to me are the key. And so our, our targeting should be about removing the lipids. And that's why exercise to me is so beneficial is because, again, we can remove that, that, that problem. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time and for the, the great chat. And I'll see you around next time. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay. See you, man. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.